Welcome to Solar Sun Triple Up. Tonight we're going to talk about emergency tactics and some considerations to think about before you go to sea or maybe the boat you buy. As a sailor, and all sailors will find at some point they are caught in foul weather, terrible weather, atrocious weather, or there's a number of other things that they'll encounter that cause them to feel like they're in an emergency. Now, I don't necessarily consider storms an emergency, but if things go wrong, they can be. And this is one of the considerations of being a solar or shorthanded sailor, is you have to prepare your boat for bad weather. You know, it might be sunny today, but there might be a storm tomorrow. You may also get some tropical depression blow through that you haven't forecast for, you haven't seen. It's not on your charts, you know, your gib files or your, you know, uh, predict wind. You just haven't, haven't seen it come through. And in some places in the islands, you do get you know, really foul weather blow through without any warning. And it's certainly not on the weather forecast because that area of the world is just not well plotted. So, and New Guinea's a classic example. I've, I've been up there a few times and I was once coming into Ball Harbour. I was probably about six hours away. It was at night. We had a 45 knot squall blow through with no warning. It wasn't on any of the uh, weather prediction charts and it flogged us, you know, just as we were coming into the, uh, into the harbour at night with ships going around, so yeah, it was inconvenient. But one of the things I'm always prepared for is foul weather. I'm always prepared for something to go wrong. So what I mean by being prepared, I always think that a storm is gonna happen. I always think something's gonna go wrong. I always think a ship may, you know, cause me harm. So I've got the boat prepared for worst case scenario. I, I generally at sea carry the dinghy on the deck and I lash it down. The other benefit of lashing my dinghy on the front deck is that it covers my front hatch, which is a very large hatch. It's over the head and chair area on my yacht. It protects it from a, a significant wave. So if a wave crashes on the front deck, the dinghy takes the hit, spreads the load. I also do the same thing on my saloon hatch. You know, I put fenders over the top of that if it's pretty stormy, or I'll store my fenders in that location. And that way, again, it disperses the load, so it's not a direct hit on the windows. You know, they're pretty strong, you know, they're 13 millimeter polycarbonate, heavy timber frames, old style, but um, I'm still trying to protect them from a direct hit. You know, uh, I do get concerned when I see some of these newer vessels. We've got, you know, significant windows, you know, very large on the sides of the hull. I'm assured that they're more than adequate in protecting the vessel from uh, from a storm or a wave wave action but you know i've seen you know some terrible terrible waves i've been hit by you know repeated waves over long many long days and you know the last storm i was coming back from fiji i got caught uh, tail end of a cyclone and a low from australia created a big squeeze when it came it was blowing what 35 45 knots i was reefed down sailing along when it came through i got hit with 78 knots and it ended up ripping off a section of my timber rail on the side of the boat. It was that bad. Um, you know, I got knocked flat multiple times. Came at night, so, you know, I wasn't expecting it. I was lying in bed at the time, just uh, getting a, a few zeds. Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty intense. So, yeah, I do worry about some of these new boats, and that's why I like the altered style. I like, I like protection, but I understand why people put the bigger windows in. But, you know, bigger windows come with a cost as well. So just a consideration. The, um, going with the theme of storms, 
I carry a storm jib and I carry a trisail, and I've carried those on all the yachts I've owned. Not everybody does. I see many sailors today who only run a second reef or a triple reef main. Hopefully it's their triple reef main if they're a cruising sailor. And they don't have a storm jib in many cases. They have a genoa on a furler. They'll have a jib on a furler. And if they're really fortunate, they might have a staysail on a furler. And they'll run a heavy staysail as a storm jib. A staysail is not a storm jib. Uh, it's not a dedicated sail to deal with you know, horrendous conditions. So that is still better than having no storm jib. And then you see people who are running a, a jib on a furler. If something happens and you've got a full jib out in a storm and you know i've experienced storms 70 to 90 knots in 12 15 20 meter seas you don't want a full jib out in those conditions um, you want the minimal amount of sail you can get away with and in some cases a storm jib is too much you know in that last storm that i got caught in uh, i had i was sailing at night i had the wind vane um, working i had a triple reef main and a storm jib on the inner staysail stay. So I've got hanged on hanged on sails on my stay. I um, have a staysail and a and a jib which I carry there. Some people carry it forward. I carry mine there. It uh, balances my boat very well. So I was expecting 35 to 45 knots for a couple of days. I'm sailing along and then I get hit with, you know, as I said, 78 knots. And it it was a significant blow that came through and it lasted all night and all the next day. You know, it upended the boat. I had drawers out. I had things out. I had broken glasses. I had every possible scenario. And and I'm used to dealing with this. I mean, I was fortunate I had the boards all in, nice and tight. The boat was watertight. And, you know, the waves crashing across the boat didn't get into the boat. You know, it made life downstairs pretty unbearable for a few hours until I managed to clean it all up. And I couldn't really go outside because I just had so much wave action against the boat. It was, it was just dangerous. Eventually, I got out. I got the rest of the main down or eased it out, got it down, and and then I ended up um, hoving two. So that was how I dealt with it, and it lasted for another two days. Yeah, significant waves, significant winds, and, uh, yeah, it was very, very intense. And if you don't have storm jib and then you've just got a normal sail, you can do a lot of damage to those sails, or you can have too much sail up. Um, you know, I ended up putting on my trysail once the wind had eased off, and I... Wanted to sail again, so I was back in about 45 knots. I thought I'd continue sailing. Got the uh, trysail up, and I, I carried that for a couple of days until conditions improved enough where I could put the main back up. I remember sailing from Portland in Victoria down to Tasmania. I was trying to get down the west coast. You know, weather didn't look too bad. There was a bit of a blow coming, but we thought we'd get into King Island. Probably about two hours from King Island, we got hit with a, a decent blow. It was like 45 knots. We tried to get it up to um, up to Curry. Couldn't we just kept getting pushed away from the island? In the end, we had 65 knots come through, and I decided to run south towards Hunter Island and hiding behind Hunter Island. So, at that situation, I had a trysail and a storm jib. I dropped the tri. Uh, sorry, I yeah tro- dropped the trysail. I was overpowered. Uh, I was just going too fast. I was I was doing about 10, 12 knots. Um, so I ended up dropping the jib and running bare poles. So, you know, bare poles, um, I was still doing six and a half, seven knots in a 12-ton boat that wasn't designed to go terribly fast. You know, like 10 knots is about my um, top boat speed when I'm sailing. So, you know, it's a good tactic in some situations. Uh, so I, I tend to use 
you know, heavy, heavier sailing boat tactics for my boat, which is, you know, have the appropriate storm sails to deal with the situation. So that's a trisail and a storm jib. Know how to install them on your boat. You can install these on any of these modern boats with just a little bit of ingenuity, like some of the jibs, storm jibs, can be uh, hanked around a furler and then taken back and you can control them that way and raise and lower them that way. And they've got like a large hank essentially, which goes around the whole furler. Uh, a trisel can essentially do the same thing around the whole mast and you raise it up and then you take the glue back and you tie it off to the boom or tie it off to independent hard points either side of the boom, depending on how your, uh, your boat is structured. You know, I was once in the Southern Ocean and my, my traveller got ripped out of the deck. You know, it was that bad for so long that, yeah, the, the bolts holding it in gave out and, you know, I had a whole pile of other things get snapped off, but, you know, I ended up relying on hard points on the deck for the, uh, the trisail. So you always got to think, you know, worst case, you know, big weather creates incredible stresses on your boat. And, you know, I've got an older boat, so, you know, things do break, but they also break on new boats because they're not often built to deal with these horrendous conditions. And it doesn't matter what you intend to do when you're sailing, you can still get caught in a significant blow in big seas and big big winds, and you've just got to deal with it. There's no one out there to help you. So I believe having a, a storm jib and a storm trisail is essential for uh, sailing the world. They take up very little room. All you've got to do is work out how to... Uh, attach them to your boat and any competent sailmaker can help you out and I think the higher vis they are the better yeah bright orange is correct I mean mine are white it's an older boat uh, but I, I do believe bright orange or some other bright color to make you nice and visible is a, a benefit when you're out there ships probably still can't see you in a storm but anything helps you know the AIS hopefully is the thing that the ships will see um, you know they're transmitting you should be transmitting also if you're not transmitting on a cruising boat in the open ocean you're a fuckwit I can't say it Bluntly enough, AIS is a godsend to modern sailing. It is the best thing since sliced bread for situational awareness and being safe on the sea. You know, like all ships run AIS, all decent ships anyway. So they are monitoring it. You should be monitoring it and it will keep you safe. So go and buy it and put it in. Now, the other thing that is worth considering is sea drugs. And I'm not talking about the little... Punsy things you can buy from a lot of marine stores rated for a dinghy. Sea drogues is a, a device you carry when you're running downwind or you're bowed to the sea. And there's a couple of different tactics here. So I once sailed a yacht back from Antarctica with no steering, no prop, just using a sea drogue, 1,600 nautical miles. What we used in the end is we tried a couple of different sea drogues and they just get torn apart hadn't hadn't needed that technique until that particular situation and then we had no choice but if we're going to survive we had to learn how to do it so we improvised we got a about a hundred or 200 meter coil of rope heavy heavy rope we wrapped it in chain we then attached a big shackle to that and then we attached that to another length of rope two waves back from the back of the boat and we were trying to run and it worked it worked really well kept the the rope which was our drogue in the water and then as conditions you know got worse or better we also put loops out behind the boat so we'd feed a, a you know a loop of rope from one winch to the other and then we just feed it out so it was like a big u-shaped behind the boat catching water so we had a drogue for steering and we could haul that from side to side give us a little bit of steerage and we had more warps going out in a u-shaped 
from the, uh, from the winches, um, which would also create drag. So we were talking, you know, like 70, 80 knots, 20 metre seas, surfing down huge waves, trying to maintain some steerage in a boat with no rudders, and it worked. We got back. We sailed 1,600 nautical miles using that and a variety of other techniques. They do work, and they will get you out of trouble, but sea drag has to be built for heavy weather. It needs to be a dedicated cruising sea drag, and there's a variety out there, um, but they've got to be heavy duty. You've got to look at this thing and go, shit, that is over-engineered. Perfect, that's what you want. There's also some that are a series of cones that you can release out through a winch. I don't think it's a bad idea. I haven't used it, but I like the concept. I used to carry a, uh, a tyre, a couple of tyres. I bought I put my dinghy on top of the tyres just to you know, stop it from moving around. Um, I had a hard dinghy for a while. And the the uh, tyres the were my sea drogues. I would just put a piece of chain around them, toss them over the back with a uh, swivel, and that was my sea drogues. I stopped carrying the tyres because they, they looked a bit unsightly on the deck, but but they also work in places like Papua New Guinea when you're up against you know, dirty old timber wharves and you don't want to use your good fenders because it's going to get torn in half. So car tyres can sometimes prove quite handy in those places. Now, the other one is a bow, a bow arm trogue. Now, if you're in a horrendous storm and you can't sail, your boat's just not dealing with you can't hove to because you're, you've got a modern boat which doesn't like to hove to or in a small boat, there's a technique that I used to use when I was in the military. We have these large drogues, and there's a type of drogue called a parachute sea anchor, which was developed for the Catalina sea boats, sea planes, and they put it in the water and they just hang off it and they drift drift down you know, the outside of a, a coastline with the currents. And you can still use that technique. I used to use it in the military. We'd throw it over the side if we just wanted to drift down the coastline with the currents, because the currents often run along the coastlines. It was a good technique for just sort of holding station. And it's what fishermen in Bass Strait use. So they'll put out a line of you know, fishing nets and they'll go upwind. And then they'll get the fishing nets out. They'll then put out a drogue, like a large drogue. It took them four or five metres across. And they'll put that out on a heavy line with some chain. And they will drift back down along their uh, nets over 12 or 16 hours with just the generator running, so they're saving fuel on their boat. You know, they're just one guy on watch, the rest are sleeping. And then once they get back down to the start of their nets, they will then, um, you know, haul in the, the sea anchor or sea drogue and and start hauling nets. But it also works on a yacht. You know, if your conditions are so bad where you can't sail, you can't hove to, you can't run bare poles and you're running with a, a stern anchor, it's just not helping. One technique you can do is put a sea drogue over the bow or a parachute sea anchor over the bow and hang off it. You need heavy rope. It needs to be really heavily um, protected from chafe, but it will work. You know, in big massive seas, you know, cyclonic type weather, you know, massive systems, in a lighter boat, this can be a way to stay alive. It's, it's another method for cat, catamarans as well. People have used these techniques and they do work. I haven't used the technique. I haven't needed it. I've got a heavy boat. It hoved, hoves to quite well, or I can run bare poles also. And I, and I also run the um, sea drogue out the, uh, out the stern and, and sail with it if I can. But they're just techniques to, to ponder. You know, what works for your boat? What can I uh, employ? It's not going to take up too much space, which is also going to work to survive a storm. Now, one of the other conditions we might find as an emergency is no motor. Again, I've had this happen a couple of times. My last time I had it happen was I was coming from Albany in Western Australia across to 
Kingston in South Australia, and I was several hundred miles south of the Australian Bight, and I was 200 miles, 250 miles short of um, Kangaroo Island, and the motor died. You know, basically, I had diesel bug in the engine. I'd, I'd bought the boat, and the last thing I hadn't, one of the things I hadn't done is I hadn't dumped all the uh, fuel, cleaned out the uh, fuel tanks, and uh, put in clean fuel. You know, my fault. I, I didn't uh, consider it at the time, but the boat was in Perth. It had been in very hot conditions, and bacteria got into the diesel. The boat hadn't been used a lot, and that bacteria bred. And when I was um, filling up in Albany, I, I could also have been bad fuel in Albany. It's, it's hard to tell, but I uh, hadn't noticed at that point. But when I got to you know, cross the bite, I used to run the engine once a day just to charge batteries. I like to run it once a day just to keep tabs on it anyway. But yeah, the um, engine you know, started sounding funny and then stopped. And you know, from fault finding, found out that the fuel pump, not fuel pump, the fuel filter had been sucked in, had been sucking that hard that it had sucked in the fuel filter. So then I started tracking it back and realised what was going on. The problem I had, though, was I'd got contamination into the injector pump. And that it didn't matter what I did, I, I couldn't fix it out at sea. And it was pretty damn rough, to be honest. It ended up to the point where I had the injectors out, you know, cleaning them with um, toothpaste on a on something, you know, a mild abrasive, just trying to clean them and blow them out with uh, aerosols. I tried all sorts of things, but it was the actual injector pump that had um, seized up. And I couldn't resolve that until I got into Kingston. So I had no motor. And that's no big deal out at sea. You, know, you don't really need a motor out at sea. You know, you've just got to be able to keep the batteries charged. I had a couple of solar panels at the time. But it was certainly not enough to keep my boat going. So all I was doing was running nav lights, turning everything else off. And then if I, um, I turn on the chart plotter on the AIS every now and again, turn it back off again, just to um, save power. Not great, but you know, you get by. And then when I came into uh, Kingston, I was running down the back passage there between Australia and Kangaroo Island. And we were doing a fantastic sail, you know, belting along at 10 knots, beautiful reach, everything was going perfect. Thought we are going to get into Kingston, sail all the way in, drop the pick, get this motor sorted, and the wind died. It was completely glassed out. I've never seen that place glassed out. It was completely glassed out. and. Then I drifted for two days up and down the back passage, about in the end 500 metres from land and the rocks. Um, so I'm working out what to do. And one of the techniques is to tie a dinghy against the side of your boat and, you know, with your little outboard, push your boat along. So once I got close enough into land, I was about 10 miles from where I wanted to go. I decided it was time. I put the dinghy over the side and you tie it just after midships. And you put the you know, the engine in. Put the I had a little three point three horsepower um, engine. Got it going, and that pushed us along at two and a half three knots uh, in the right direction. <clears throat> Did that for about seven miles, and yeah, it was fine. We had maneuverability. We had steerage from the from the yacht. We had propulsion from the dinghy. We had enough fuel to do this for probably twenty four hours, and we got all the way into Kingston, or probably about you know couple of miles short and then wind came and we sailed the remainder in with just a dinghy on tow. It got us in there, it got us away from the rocks and the mud banks and all the other problems that we were going to encounter and that got us uh, got us out of trouble. So it's, it's a technique to uh, keep in the back of your head. It's also a technique that gives merit to having 
two outboards. If you've got a little little outboard for you know, like even a little electric, it's fine. But it's it's also good to have a bigger outboard to um, for you know things like diving, excursions, and who push your boat if you lose your main engine. Just something to ponder. Well, the next one I'll discuss is sinking. So when I was in Antarctica, we were taking on about 1,500 litres of water an hour. That's a lot of water coming into your boat, and it's uh, quite concerning, to be honest. And we were running the pumps, the pumps failed, then we were bucketing for hours. Ten men on buckets, moving a lot of water. Trust me, you'll do anything to stay afloat. And copying in the uh, in the life raft was a death, death sentence. To be honest, I think it's a death sentence in most storms. So I learned a lot about pumps, and I thought about a lot about pumps ever since. So every time I get into a boat now, and I'm going to do an ocean passage, I dump water into the bilge, and I see if the pumps work. If the pumps don't work, I pull them apart and make them work. I do it on my boat every three months. I make sure my bilges are clean, obviously, and then I fill them with water, and I make sure the bilge pumps are all operating perfectly and get the water out. Uh, if you're not doing it, you should. There's too many boats that don't check their bilge pumps, and this boat had uh, that I was on in Antarctica had not long done the Sydney to Hobart, so they hadn't checked the bilge pumps. They had bilge pumps, but they hadn't checked them. They didn't work. There was a uh, failure in the man- bilge manifold. And that nearly, nearly killed us. <clears throat> so in addition to your automatic bilge pumps, which you should have, you should have a manual bilge pump. So my boat has got four bilges. It's not a fantastic concept, but it's got four bilges. It's got a uh, forward bilge, um, two bilges, deep in the saloon area, and then a rear bilge. The forward and the rear one get most of the water coming into the boat and collect it, and they've both got automatic pumps. The others have got manual pumps where I can push it to the to the outer bilges. A lot of boats, all the water runs into the one bilge, like my previous yacht, and I love that concept. It's easier to manage. You know where it is. It all flows, you know, hopefully downhill into the bilge, and then you can pump it out. But a lot of new boats are very shallow in the bilge, it doesn't take a lot of water to cause a problem. And I also see a lot of new boats have their batteries down in the bilge. Once you get water in your batteries, your bilge pump doesn't work. So that is a consideration for a lot of uh, new boat owners. Where, where are their batteries? And if they're too low on the boat and you get water in, you've just lost your ability to pump out. So then you need your manual pumps. And when was the last time you checked your manual pumps? Trust me, you know it, it's something you should check. They should work. They should be big enough to move a lot of water. So a big whale gusher or something like that is essential. In addition to that, I carry two other pumps. I have a, a cheap Bunnings you know, sludge pump. It's just something that you move mud and crap out of a gutter and it plugs into 240. So I've got a generator and I've got an inverter. It does hook up to my batteries. My batteries are also above the bilge. They're about two feet above the bilge. So if I can take two feet of water before I lose my batteries. And I will run that big bilge pump or a sump pump, I can move it around the boat and dump it in a hole. And I've got 20 feet of hose on it, so I can just put the hose over the side. And that pushes a lot of water, a significant amount of water. And it'll take all the crap. It'll take paper and anything else that's in there and just chew it up and spit it over the side. I like that concept. I also have a 12-volt one as well, which I can move around. And then there's another consideration if you've got a lot of water in your boat, is to close your intake, undo the filter and and run a hose from that area into the bilge and just pump it overboard. But And some people have that rigged as a, uh, a system where they can transfer into the bilge and just pump from the bilge through the through the motor. It, it comes with you know uh, pros and cons, but it is a consideration. I went with the bigger bilge pumps because they're dedicated. 
and I can run them off my generator and I can run them off my generator for at least 20 hours if I need to um, without blinking. So check your pumps, have enough of them, make sure they're big enough to move a shit ton of water because trust me, when you've got 1500 litres now coming in and it's freezing, you get very motivated to, uh, to get that water out. Now another consideration is losing your rig. I thankfully haven't lost my rig over the side. I've met a few, couple of people that have, or they've had problems with you know, rig snapping. I knew a guy who, uh, down near Macquarie Island lost the rig. It was uh, with rod rigging. So solid stainless rigging and uh, it failed. And that's one of the things I, I worry about is stainless steel had um, a few shackles snap under load. Uh, you know, is it wear and tear? Is it vibration? Who knows? I mean, stainless does fail. You know, it's, it is a problem. You know, I've had, uh, I do daily checks on my boat. And in the past, I've, I've found parts of my rigging that have got hairline cracks in it because I'm, you know, looking intently at all the rigging as I move around. And every time I go head out to sea, I'm checking the rigging to make sure I use a little drone up on the top of the mast or I climb up there. You know, so as a solo sail, the drone is fantastic for checking the top of the rigging. You get it in there, take a photo, blow it up, and you know just see what it is. If you can't get up there yourself, or you haven't got a mate to throw you up, or you don't want to jumar up, then you know the drone is handy just to do a quick check. It's good to get a rigger in as well, just to annually to have a good look over your boat. You know they've got eagle eyes; they're looking for these problems. But you know if you do lose a rig over the side, it's a significant challenge. You know to get it back. If you're in a, a glass boat, timber boat, a um, composite boat, losing your rig can end up in losing your boat. Like if a rig punches a hole through the side of your boat, then you've got real problems. So one of the things that you should be thinking about is how do I either secure my rig or how do I cut it away? My my thoughts, I'd, I'd be trying to secure it first, but if you've lost it in a storm, then you want to um, cut it away. And I always carry my fiberglass boat. I always carried big bolt cutters. I carried machetes, um, different types of you know, cable cutters. And, and these days I carry uh, electric angle grinders with stainless steel blades on them, so I cut things away very quickly if I need to. But I'm in an aluminium boat these days, so I'm, if I can, I'm going to secure my rig to the side of the boat and then slowly winch it up until it's up on the tow rail, and then I'm going to strap it on, and I'm trying to get recover what I can. Um, you know, sails are not cheap, fills are not cheap, booms are not cheap, hardware's not cheap, and I can salvage all those parts to sail to the next location. I can use my spinnaker pole and the a boom to make a, an A-frame, potentially use my storm sails to drive the boat along. And that's how I think, you know, I'm looking at the redundancy of what I can do with what I have. But, you know, I have an aluminium boat, it's harder to punch up. So losing a rig is not a end of the world situation, it's just the start of a new adventure. Once you, uh, once you secure your rig, tie it alongside or cut it away, then you've got to work out how to sail to the next location or a new location. It's possible, it's plausible. All you've got to do is improvise. You know, there's still the stump of the mast, if it's still there. There's the spinnaker poles, if you've got them available. There's the rig that you've salvaged. There's a boom off the rig. You can make an A-frame. You can improvise different numbers of sail combinations. You've got line on board. You can do a forestay. And you can put up your um, storm sails and can continue sailing. It won't be fast, it won't be uh, graceful but it'll stop the boat from rolling like a pig and it'll get you to where you need to go. I think you need to consider as well, I mean, if something does go wrong, you lose your rig over the side, whatever you do, do not turn on your engine until you've secured everything and you've got all the lines back on side. So you don't want to fail your prop as well as lose your rig. 
just a consideration that some people have done in the past. So it's just something to think about in that emergency situation. The, uh, the other thing I think that too many uh, newer boats don't really consider is redundancy in the rig. So if you snap a, a halyard, like a, a main halyard, how do you get the halyard up? Or how do you, how do you get the uh, the mainsail up again? You know, is it um, if it's a traditional slab reef style with a track, if it's you know, furling, it's it's a different situation altogether. But you know, uh, there's people that do snap halyards and then they they feel like they're lost. Whereas you know, you've got a topping lift, you can use that. You've got a spinnaker halyard, you can run around the boat and uh, and at least get the the um, the main up to the third reef. Maybe you might not be able to get the full main up, but at least get some of the main up. And I think when you're designing a boat for cruising or modifying an existing boat, having redundancy, you know, like two, three, four spinnaker halyards so that you can, if one snaps or there's a problem or you lose them, it's wrapped around up on the um, up on the mast somewhere, you know, you've got another one. You've got, uh, if you know, your main halyard snaps, and I, I had one snap not that long ago, um, the wire had worn through, I hadn't really noticed it in inspections, it snapped, and then I just used a topping lift to get to the next location until I had to climb the mast and, and put a new um, put a new halyard in. You know, these things do happen. Having a cruising focus with redundancy in all facets of your boat makes it easier if something happens to keep going. It's why I talk about storm sails. If you lose a mainsail or you lose, you know, your Genoa or your jib, having a storm sail won't get you there fast, but it'll still get you there. And that's why I like redundancy in the rig as well. That's why I have a catch. If I, I lose my main, I'm hopefully I've still got my mizzen. I can still sail with the mizzen and a a, um, a foresail, rig a foresail off the uh, off the mizzen. That's why my my mizzen and my main are not connected. They're um, they're separate, complete separate entities on the boat. And so I have lots of halyards on uh, on both sails, so I can rig multiple spinnakers, multiple sail configurations. It just gives me peace of mind it's how i think one of the other problems people do is you know losing a runner which i've lost two um it's not the end of the world it's certainly very inconvenient but in some cases people carry an emergency rudder set up i've never carried one on a boat um, i normally carry a rudder or emergency tiller if i break a linkage in the steering or lose a cable or one of those things i've, I've had you know the sheaves of the cable wear out so i've lost the steering and I've had to revert to the emergency tiller. You know, that is a pain in the ass. Steering a boat with emergency tiller is a pain in the ass. Um, you know, your autopilot doesn't work unless your autopilot's connected to the quadrant. And if that was your problem, then you're in a difficult situation. On my boat, I have emergency tiller and I have a tiller pilot, which I connect to my wind vane, which I can connect to my emergency tiller. And then I can run the lines from my wind vane to my emergency tiller so I've still got some form of self-steerage if I need to so that's just a consideration to think about how are you going to steer this boat have you even checked it do you know where it is I know exactly where mine is it's where all my emergency tools are my bolt cutters and my cable cutters and my emergency tiller are all in the same spot it's the same place I keep my grab bag and yeah my EPIRB and all my emergency gear it's one stop shop those are the things you should pull out occasionally and just give them a once over, make sure they fit, and make sure you can steer a boat if you need to. It's a good exercise anyway to, to look at these things. The consideration also is when you're setting up a cruising boat, and if you haven't already got a wind vane, is to consider a wind vane that has got an emergency rudder in it. 
So you can lock the your normal rudder in a neutral position or give it a little bit of uh, windage um, or trim rather, and that will steer a course using just the rudder on the uh, on the wind vane. So that is a can also act as an emergency rudder in case some rogue orca comes through and decides to um, chow down on your rudder, which seems to be happening around Portugal these days. You know, on, on my boat, I have a skeg in front of the rudder. So it's an aluminium boat with an aluminium skeg, runs down the front of the rudder, has a bearing at the bottom, or a bush rather, an iron bush. So that protects the rudder in case I, I snag a, a pot, like a cray pot, or a net, or some other debris in the ocean. It protects my rudder from a direct hit from something, you know, maybe even orcas. I'm not sure about that so much, but it does protect the rudder. You know, I've I've caught rudders before, or caught craypots on my rudders before, and I've dragged them and had to lean over and cut them free because it had stopped the boat in the water. So it's a, most new boats don't have any form of protection on their rudders. You know, you have some boats with twin rudders, so it gives you a little bit of redundancy, but if you're on the wrong heel, then the rudder's probably not going to be effective. If you're setting up an older boat with a traditional rudder, if it has a skeg, that just gives you a bit more redundancy in your steering system. But it's just a consideration. You know, my last year I had it, this year I had, has it. I, I know that that skeg has taken a bit of a pounding. I, I look at it when I haul the boat out and how many chunks are missing from it. So it has paid dividends, in my opinion, in protecting my steering system from impacts. I think that's about enough for today. I'm up to 35 minutes thereabouts, and that's a little longer than I'd like to talk. So thank you for joining me. They're just considerations for emergency situations on a cruising boat, whether you're solo or shorthanded. And all it boils down to preparation is be prepared. Have the tools on board for whatever. Think about it. You know, just go through it in your head. What if, what if, what if, what if, and have the tools. And I'll, um, at a later stage I'll, in my blog, I'll put a series of toolkits for different situations and how we can deal with them. But for the moment, thanks for joining me. Safe sailing, and I will see you out, see you out there.